Well, as uh, Jana said earlier, this is our second week in our Genesis Part 2 series, where we are looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, I explained last week that about 14 months ago, we finished a series on Genesis 1 through 11, and when that series ended, I promised that in the not-too-distant future, we would come back and do more in Genesis, and so I'm making good on that promise. Uh, 14 months might seem like a little bit of a, a, long, a long time, maybe a, a little bit longer than uh, the promise would uh, suggest, but here we are, so I'm, make, I'm doing my, good to make, my best to make good on that, that promise. Um, before I went to seminary, many of you know that I worked in campus ministry. I worked with a crew formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And when I was there, I was involved in an interfaith discussion group. It was mostly uh, attended by Christians and Muslims. And one evening, I went to dinner with some people from that group, and one of the the Muslims uh, said, I remember, we were at Husky Pizza, and uh, he said, I don't like the Bible. He's like, I tried reading it, and I just couldn't get very far. And so I said, well, uh, you know, what didn't you like about it? Why do you have trouble reading it? And normally when you ask that question to someone, you expect them to say something like, well, it was boring, you know, or I didn't understand it. But his answer was very interesting. He said, I didn't like it because it described God's prophets as doing terrible things. I couldn't even make it through the first book. And his Muslim friends all kind of nodded in agreement. And I bring that story up because I'm confident that the passage we're going to look at today is one that elicited that response. Uh, there's quite a few in the book of Genesis that could elicit that response. Um, but I'm pretty sure this was one of them. In Islam, Abraham is considered to be one of the prophets of God. And Muslims believe that the prophets don't commit major sins. But in this story, Abraham does something that most of us, or I hope all of us, would consider to be a major sin. He does a pretty terrible thing. Now, I told my Muslim friends something similar to what I'm going to say this morning, which is this, uh, very important principle of biblical interpretation. Just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean that God endorses it, okay? Just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean God endorses it. When the Bible uh, reports that Abraham does something, it doesn't necessarily mean that God likes what he did, unless, of course, Scripture explicitly says that Abraham was doing what God told him to do. Okay, Now, this is a principle of Bible reading that might seem obvious to us who are more experienced with reading Scripture. But for those of us who are less experienced, this might not be obvious. And that's why I think it's very important to make this clear. If we're less experienced with reading Scripture, we can assume that the Bible is just an instruction manual. Like some instruction manual that fell out of the sky and we're just supposed to open it and it tells us how to live our lives. And so if there's a story in there about a person, we can assume, well, clearly this person is supposed to be an example for us of how to live life. And of course, there are things that our forefathers and foremothers in the faith did that are good examples for us. You know, last week we talked about how God said to Abraham, go, and he did. That's a good example. 
But there's also things that they did that are not good examples for us. None of them were perfect. And the Bible is very honest about their imperfections. It doesn't hide them. It's open about their flaws. And what I tried to explain to my Muslim friends is that this is actually a good thing. There's, there's a good side to this. And for two reasons. So why is it a good thing? Because their flaws make the stories in the Bible more credible. The people I know who are Christians, who are followers of God, are not perfectly pious people. No offense. Uh, but they're not. And if the Bible was a bunch of stories about people of faith being perfectly pious, then I would have a lot of trouble believing them. They would not strike me as true. Because I know enough about human nature, and I think you guys too, to know that perfect people don't exist. The flaws also make the Bible more credible because they remind us that these stories are not the stories that we would make up. If you were going to make up a faith and make up an origin story about that faith, why would you have the heroes, the forefathers, foremothers of your faith doing bad things? Why would you do that, right? It would be completely counterproductive. So again, these, these flaws, they help make the stories in the Bible more credible, more believable, more authentic. And then a second reason why this is a good thing is because their flaws suggest that God is graceful and willing to work with sinful human beings. And that should be good news for all of us, unless we're so arrogant as to think that we don't need grace, in which case we really do. So, hey, good news again, right? All right, so all that to say, if what we're about to read in this passage upsets you, that's okay. It should upset you. Uh, my Muslim friends were right to be bothered by Abraham's behavior here. But rather than tossing out the Bible, like my Muslim friends, let this story remind you that the Bible is credible and God is graceful. Okay? So the passage is Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. If you want to follow along in the Bible, turn there now. Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. This is where the good example stops. Okay, that was a good start, right? <laughs> I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So Abram has this fear that the Egyptians are going to see how beautiful Sarai is, and then they're going to kill him so they can have her. And so he says, okay, if people ask, we'll say, you're my sister, and then things will work out well for me. Um, and actually, we... It's easy for us to miss this, but this benefits Abram potentially, not only because he won't be violently attacked, but because in that culture, if you were the only family around your sister, you would be regarded as her guardian. And so if someone wanted to marry your sister, custom would have it that you would then receive lots of wedding gifts. Okay. 
So hopefully we can all see why this is a pretty low thing for Abram to do, right? Because this plan makes no attempt to protect or defend Sarai, right? It's just all about Abram saving his own skin. The honorable thing for Abram to do would have been for him to say something like, all right, Sarai, there are people here who might want to kill me so they can have you. So Let's do our best to keep a low profile, you know, make sure to wear the head covering when you're out, maybe cover your face a little bit. But, but hey, if someone asks, I'm going to be honest with them because I'd rather risk them attacking me than just give you over to be taken away. Right? That would have been an honorable thing for a husband to say. But instead, Abram is a coward. He takes the cowardly course. All right, continuing in verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. So remember what I said about local custom, okay? And so not only is Abram receiving gifts because his sister is being taken to be married, but she's being taken to be married to Pharaoh, right, who's got the goods. So Abram's living, living high on life here. Continuing in verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So this passage, it's a little confusing to me because I'm not sure how it actually played out in real life, we, a, lot, a lot of the details are missing. Um, but somehow, Pharaoh knows that Sarai doesn't belong there. My best guess is that everyone got sick, everyone in Pharaoh's household, except for Sarai. And so that made him think, Sarai must not actually be part of my household. Right? And so then he must have concluded, oh, well, if she's not part of my household, she must actually belong to someone else. She must be married to someone else. And so then he calls Abram in and has this exchange with him. Now, I want us to notice something that he says to Abram, something that's very significant. He says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why didn't you tell me? That's, that's very significant because that in question implies that if Abram had been honest in the first place, he would have been fine, right? Pharaoh was saying, what would have ever motivated you to lie like this? And so clearly it was not Pharaoh's practice to kill people and then take their beautiful wives, because if it was, this is a stupid question, right? Abram had just assumed the worst. He had assumed the absolute worst, and he was willing to lose Sarai in order to avoid the possibility of experiencing the worst, right? Right? Not just the worst, but the possibility of it. 
And what we learn here is that what Abram did, it wasn't just cowardly, but it was completely unnecessary for his protection, right? So, you have full permission to think of Abram as a cowardly loser and a terrible husband here. Uh, in fact, I encourage you to think that. You know, clearly God wasn't happy with what he did, right? Because he supernaturally intervened in order to course correct. So God wasn't happy with Abram, and we shouldn't be either. All right, so what can we learn from this story? Besides that Abram could be a cowardly person and a terrible husband. Well, I think... What we can learn is best discovered by asking this question. What could have prevented Abram from being a cowardly loser and a terrible husband? Faith in God's promises. That's what I believe the answer is. Faith in God's promises. Abram throws his wife under the bus. Why? Because he's afraid of being killed. But he shouldn't be afraid of being killed. Last week, if you remember, we talked about Abram's call. And remember, God made certain promises to Abram. And one of those promises was that he was going to be turned into a great nation. But at this point, Abram doesn't have any descendants, right? He's got no kids. So Abram should know that in order for God's promise to be fulfilled, I have to stay alive for at least a while longer, at least until I can have a kid. Right? But in this moment, Abram really thinks that his life is in jeopardy. He should be walking around with confidence. He thinks he should be like, God said, I'm good, I'm safe. Right? But he doubts God's promise. One way of putting this, the situation Abram is in is if Abram dies, God lies. Right? If Abram dies, God lies. But in this story, Abram lies because he's afraid that God lies. Abram would not lie if he was confident that God does not lie. You see what I mean? Now, I don't want to make it sound like Abram didn't have faith at all. You know, just last week we talked about how Abram heard God's call, this call to leave everything that's comfortable and familiar and to step into the unknown, and he did that. That was an incredible act of faith. But here we are, just a few verses later, and that faith seems to have disappeared. So what happened? How did Abram get here? Well, we don't know absolutely for sure, but I have a suggestion for answering this. I can't help but think but the reason, that the reason is why they were in Egypt in the first place, right? There was a famine in the land. This is the first time in Abram's story where he encounters a real challenge, a real problem. Because up until this point, He's answered God's call, and he's been traveling around Canaan. He's been uh, building altars to the true God around Canaanite sites of worship. And it's been smooth sailing. Things have been going well, as far as we know, no serious problems. But then a famine arrives. And I can't help but think that this is what shook Abram's confidence. God had called him to this land, and then there wasn't enough food in the land. And maybe Abram thought, maybe I misheard God, or maybe God doesn't really know what he's doing. 
And I think a similar thing can happen to us. We can have this strong sense that God is calling us to something, and then we start to pursue it, but then there's a roadblock, right? There's a challenge. There's a famine in the land. And that can cause us to doubt whether God was ever leading us in the first place. Last week, I encouraged us to ask ourselves three questions. Hopefully, if you were here, you remember this. Three questions that we should be inspired to ask based on Abraham's call. What place of comfort might God be calling me to leave? What unknown might God be calling me to step into? And what impossibility might God be calling me to trust him with? And I don't know if you took time to reflect on these questions this last week. And I don't know if you did, if the Holy Spirit impressed an answer to any of these questions on your heart. But if he did, I want, you, I want to encourage you to recognize that if you follow the Spirit's leading and you pursue that calling, there's no guarantee that you won't find yourself in a famine. Right? There's no guarantee that things are just going to be smooth sailing and easy. In fact, anything that's worth doing encounters resistance. Right? So if we follow the Spirit's leading, which is the most worthwhile thing that we can do, it's pretty much inevitable, inevitable <clears throat> that we're going to experience hard times. And when we experience those hard times, the best thing that we can do is what Abram, Abram did not do in our story, right? which is to keep trusting that God is faithful and keep trusting that God will keep his promises. I think that that is the main message that we should be taking away from this passage this morning. Keep trusting that God is faithful. Keep trusting that God will keep his promises. Now, we could just end there, but I feel like this takeaway inspires a question, which is, what what has God actually promised us? We're supposed to trust in God's promises, but what has God actually promised us? You know, Abram had this promise that his earthly life would not end before he had descendants, but God hasn't made that same promise to all of us. I think it's really important for us to be honest about this. You know, generally speaking, as Christians, we are not promised immunity from premature death or cancer or disease, accidents, even violent attacks. These things have all happened to Christians. They continue to happen to Christians. You know, the harsh reality is that people who are followers of Jesus experience really difficult things. And yet, we're told, trust God. And if you trust God, it will go better for you. Our, I think our situation is succinctly described by the Christian author Frederick Buechner. He says, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Terrible things will happen, but don't be afraid. How? <laughs> What are we supposed to trust God for in order to not be afraid of these terrible things? 
Well, this morning, I want to remind us of three things that God has promised. Three things that he's promised to all of us who trust in Christ. And I'm not claiming that this list is comprehensive. There may be other things that we could add to it. But there are three things that I can say confidently God wants for all of us that he's promised for us and that we should rely on him for. And I would say that these three things taken together are even better than what was promised to Abram. And they should be easy to remember because they all start with P. So I'm trying to be like one of those alliterative preachers right now. All right. First thing, presence. Presence with a C, not with a T. Although God does give the the one with a T as well. Um, God promises that whatever circumstance we are in, he will be with us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, one of his last words to his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I believe that applies not just to the 12 disciples, but to everyone who follows Jesus in their wake. I am with you always. And then there's Romans 8, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, It tells us that nothing, Nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from God's loving presence. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the loving presence of God, it cannot be taken from us. It remains regardless of our circumstances. The Apostle Paul wants us to realize this because you can see he lists the absolute worst case scenario first, right? It's the first one, death. What's worse than that one? Even when our earthly life is in danger, uh, even when it's ending, the loving presence of God remains with us. So whatever we go through, we're supposed to have this faith that we're not doing it alone. God is with us, and he's not some passive observer. I think sometimes we think God is watching us rather than God is with us. And if we only think God is watching us, we need to make an adjustment. Okay, God isn't just watching us, he's with us. He's not like someone on the couch watching football, like he's watching your life, eating popcorn, you know. He is is with us. He's actively involved. He's guiding us, supporting us, us, cheering us on, even suffering with us. He's with us. The second thing that we're promised is power. Power. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power of love, and of self-discipline. When we invite Christ into our lives, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, and that spirit is a spirit that gives strength, that gives power. Now, I want us to be careful not to misunderstand what that means. The Holy Spirit gives several kinds of strength, um, 
but there's one particular kind of strength that I think is being emphasized here. Um, how many of you have heard this verse quoted? Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Raise your hand if, if you've heard that. Okay. Most of us have heard that. People love this verse, right? Athletes who want to win championship games say, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Uh, we, we appeal to this verse to convince ourselves that God will help us to do all kinds of things, right? God will make our business succeed because we can do all things through him who gives us strength. God will help us to eat that entire plate of food for the eating competition because he, he, we can do all things through him who gives us strength. But when we understand this verse in context, we realize that the strength that God gives us is, is for something specific, Okay, and it's not success in athletic competitions or eating contests. Uh, listen to the bigger context here. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So see, the strength that Paul is talking about is the strength to be content, whatever the circumstances. It's, it's not the strength to become rich or successful by the world's standards. Uh, the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily give our business strength to thrive, it do, he doesn't necessarily give us strength to win that championship game. But what the Spirit gives is something that's better and something that's actually far more powerful and remarkable. The Spirit gives us this ability to have peace and contentment even if our business goes under, right? And even if we lose that championship game that we've been training for. And God's promise to us is that he gives us this power this power is available to us to have peace regardless of our circumstances. And then finally, number three, God promises permanence. Permanence. That might not be the best word uh, for what I mean, but I'm trying to keep that, that P thing going so, um, so that it's easy to remember. By permanence, I mean the assurance that regardless of what happens to us in this life, we can have confidence of eternal life. Uh, for those of us who trust in, in Christ, God calls us to have this confidence that our life is indestructible. Ultimately, it is, it is safe, it is secure, it cannot be taken away. One of the best places in Scripture that we can go to to reassure us of this is 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's long. It requires a lot of explanation. But if you ever want to gain some, some reassurance of eternal life, I encourage you to go through 1 Corinthians 15. Spend some time reading about it, reflecting on it, meditating on it. Uh, it's a really rich passage. But here are some highlights. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So 
the imagery here is saying that Jesus Christ and his resurrection is like the first, um, the first part of a harvest, the first fruits. And what Paul is saying here is that there's a much bigger harvest coming later when Jesus returns again. And those first fruits are going to be, um, we're going we're to see that Christ was, was just the beginning of a much bigger harvest, right? What happened to Jesus, the resurrection that he experienced, that's something that all of us who are trusting in him will also get to experience ourselves. Paul also says, the body that is sown is perishable. So in other words, our bodies, when we die, right, they decompose, they disappear, they're perishable. The body that is sown is perishable, the one that goes in the ground, but it is raised imperishable, right? It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body, an indestructible body, like Jesus' resurrected body. You know, God really wants us to trust that through Jesus, this life is not the end. Though our bodies and our lives are temporary, now we will receive permanent bodies that will never perish. And, you know, that was a promise that Abram didn't have yet, right? Abram had a promise that he would live until he had descendants and that he'd have this great legacy, but he didn't have a promise yet about eternal life. I don't think that was even something that was on his radar. So this is definitely one way that we have a better promise than what Abram even had. So, my encouragement for us this week is for us to not be like Abram. Last week, it was for us to be kind of like Abram. This week, no, not like Abram. Uh, in this story, Abram lost faith in God's promises, and we should all be rightfully disgusted with those results. So let's be encouraged not to repeat that mistake. Let's hold on to faith in God's promises, right? Promises for, for presence, for power, and for permanence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help each of us to understand what it means to have faith. To have faith in your promises, confidence that you're with us, uh, to know the secret of being content in all circumstances, to trust that our lives are indestructible through you, Lord. I pray that we would know what it means to have that kind of faith. And that as we understand it more and more, you would keep us from the anxiety that leads us to make bad decisions, decisions like what Abram made here. Help us to know, Lord, what it means to walk with you, to trust you. Lord, we don't want to be naive about the world that we live in and all the difficulties that exist and the challenges that exist, Lord. But we also want to trust that even though both beautiful and terrible things happen, that we don't need to be afraid, that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.